There are so many teachings of Jesus that challenge our way of thinking and that push us beyond our normal levels of comfort. In his Sermon on the Mount alone, he baffles us modern-day readers of the text with the Beatitudes. A few weeks ago, we noted the blessings Jesus describes are not the ones that we'd come up with if we were the ones making that list. If we were to keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, we'd come to the Lord's Prayer, which contains more surprises. When teaching us to pray, we find that Jesus does not instruct us to pray for our own health or prosperity or for our burdens to be lifted. Rather, he teaches us to pray for God's will to be done and for God's kingdom to come. The Sermon on the Mount also gives us that whole business about turning the other cheek and all of these seemingly impossible teachings, like walking a second mile after someone's already made you walk one. So I can't help but wonder if, like many of you on a Sunday morning, the gathered congregation listening to Jesus preaching upon the mount that day was thinking to themselves, when is this sermon ever going to end? And right in the middle of his sermon, Jesus gives us this little gem about reconciliation. And it's not always an easy pill to swallow. As he often does, Jesus reframes the issue, making it both challenging, but also life-giving and grace-filled. Jesus begins, You have heard it said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Anytime we hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, followed by, but I say to you, we know that something is coming that shifts the foundation of our understanding. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Out. Jesus moves us away from the actual action of murder towards the emotion of the heart. If you are angry with someone, then you are liable to judgment. Now hold on a minute now. Is Jesus this one, remember the one, who in a rage overturned the tables in the temple and in a fit of anger drove out the money changers? Is he telling us here, to never get angry. I'm not sure that that's what he's saying here, but I do think he's giving those with ears to hear a warning about what can happen if they are to hold on to anger, and it is not good. So he gives this instruction, and he lifts up the example of someone who is about to give their offering at the altar. Instead of giving the gift or the offering, Jesus tells them to to put it down, to set it down, and and then to go off, to be reconciled with your brother or with your sister. And it's only then, once you've reconciled, that you can come back and you can present your offering at the altar. 
All week long, I've been trying to wrap my mind around what this worship community's stewardship committee would have to say in response. We are going to be taking the offering here shortly, before too long this morning. And can you imagine if instead of receiving your offering, we had anyone who had a problem, any kind of problem or an issue, any kind of issue with another person to just leave and to go home and to sort it all out and to work it all out and to make peace and to become reconciled, then and only then you could come back and give your offering. Can you imagine what the stewardship committee was thinking about that sermon? Not only would the sanctuary, if we did that, not only would the sanctuary empty out, we'd be lucky to see any of you ever again. The offering plates would contain just a mere pittance. Who among us is not even a little bit angry or upset with someone else? And I can say to you, I'd be one of the first ones out the door. But this is what Jesus is teaching. This is what Jesus is preaching. Go and be reconciled. Sure, the church needs your offerings, but more than that, the church needs people to be in a right relationship with one another. Go and be reconciled, Jesus says. Of course, wherever you find reconciliation, you're bound to find forgiveness not too far away. Reconciliation and forgiveness, they are brothers and sister. Perhaps they're twins. Forgiveness and reconciliation. If you've ever been involved with either one, then I don't have to tell you just how difficult this can be. We all have our individual needs for forgiveness and for reconciliation. You know what they are for you. And we also have communal or corporate needs for it as well. Sometimes as a community, you see, we need to set our offering down and go and be reconciled. Like our country is still trying to figure out how to do this after slavery. That horrible and sinful time in our collective past when we went to Africa and other places and stole scientists and doctors architects, astronomers, teachers, entrepreneurs, fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters, and we made them slaves. Then we had Japanese internment camps. We still have racist policies aimed at suppressing people of color and more. But it's not just us. It's not just our country, our community, the world, really. The world is still reeling with the repercussions of the Holocaust, and what it means for our world today as some of those hateful ways of thinking and being are rearing their ugly heads once again. Perhaps one of the largest efforts towards reconciliation comes to us out of South Africa and their struggle with apartheid. From the 1940s all the way up until the 1990s, South Africa employed systemic, an institutionalized racism and segregation that sought to keep the white minority above the non-white majority, to keep people apart. By its very definition, apartheid seeks to keep people apart, and not just at water fountains. 
1996, that's the year I graduated college. In 1996, shortly after the end of apartheid, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established. The mandate of this commission was to bear witness to, record, and in some cases grant amnesty to the perpetuators of crimes relating to human rights violations, as well as offering reparation and rehabilitation to its victims. A register of reconciliation was also established so that ordinary South Africans could express their regret for past failures. Now, we've tried something like this before, the World War II, but unlike the Nuremberg trials in Germany after Hitler and the Nazis were defeated and they sought to, to bring war criminals to justice, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission instead focused on reconciliation. And so during this process, victims of gross human rights violations were invited to come forward and to give testimony about their experience. Some of them were selected even to give public hearings. Perpetuators of the violence could also give testimony and request amnesty from prosecution. Among other things, it gave victims a platform to share their experience. It gave offenders the opportunity to confess what they've done, to seek forgiveness. Because you see, confession opens you to the possibility of being able to receive this gift of forgiveness. If forgiveness and reconciliation are twins, then confession is their older brother because it comes first. Or maybe they're triplets because most often they all go together. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was one of the key players in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and he himself was often moved to tears by the process of hearing the accounts of so many, so many absolutely brutal violations. I recently saw an interview with the great archbishop on this topic, and when asked about reconciliation and forgiveness, he said, Forgiveness is abandoning my right to revenge, my right to pay you back. He said, when you hurt me, you give me the right to refuse you. I have the right to retribution. When I forgive, I jettison that right, that right to revenge and to pay you back, and open the door to a new beginning. It's not necessarily letting go of that pain, but it is embracing the right to restore the relationship. And that is the primary definition of the New Testament word for reconciliation, restoring the relationship. It is to change hostility into friendship. To be reconciled is to become friends again. I have a friend who, upon making up with his wife, after they have a fight or an argument or some sort of disagreement, after they make up, he says, we're friends again. But Tutu's interviewer isn't fully buying this, or at least he's struggling with it, so he pushes back a little bit, and he challenges Tutu's notion of forgiveness, almost implying that it doesn't go 
far enough, especially in the context of apartheid, the interviewer says, yes, but we're talking about genocide and torture. To which Tutu responded, as a Christian, I'm afraid that we follow a Lord and a Master who at the point when they are crucifying him in the most painful way can say, Father, forgive them. See, reconciliation in Christian theology is the end of the estrangement between God and humanity. It is what brings us back together with God. It's one of the most important themes running throughout the story of our faith and of our theology, reconciliation. Karl Barth writes about it in great detail in his Church Dogmatics. So does John Calvin in his Institutes. He writes that reconciliation is, is the doing away of sin and the calming of God's wrath. To say it another way, reconciliation means that we are friends with God again. And it happens through the cross of Jesus Christ. William Barclay once wrote, The effect of the cross changed not the heart of God, but the heart of man. It was man who needed to be reconciled, not God, So when we look at it in this way, it was our sin which was turned to penitence, our rebellion which was turned to surrender, our enmity which was turned to love by the sacrificial love of Christ upon the cross. So Barclay continues and he says that one thing needs to be said. If all of this is so, and it is so, then the ministry of the church is a ministry of reconciliation. It is how we help heal this broken world. The function of the church is not many of the things that we busy ourselves with, and it is not seeking a better method to operate so that we can increase. And to be sure, the function of the church is not the announcement of the threat of God's wrath, rather It is the proclamation of the offer of God's love. The message of the church must forever be, look at that cross and see how much God loves you. For how can you hold back in the face of a love like that? Markley writes, The very essence of Christianity is the restoration of a lost relationship. The summons of Christianity is to return to a God whose love we have spurned, but whose love is ever waiting for us to come home. This is why each and every week we confess our sins, we hear a word of forgiveness, and then we pass the sign of reconciliation and peace. We are to be at peace with God, and we are to be at peace with one another. So this is our call. To lay down whatever it is that we are doing, no matter how good the intention of that thing is. to go and be reconciled 
reconcile to our brothers, our sisters, or whoever it may be. So maybe that means confession. Maybe that means forgiveness. Most likely it means both. This can be a hard word, a difficult word from Jesus. But you know, if we take it to heart, it can also be a life-giving word of grace for all involved. Amen.